Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Follow Without Warning Podcast Season 3, Investigation Derailed with Sheila Waisaki on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Without Warning Podcast presents Season 3, Investigation Derailed. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Waisaki and examine a major injustice. Warning, the following episode contains elements that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. We all dread tax time when you have to gather reams of documents and fill out a ton of paperwork. But we do it because someday we might need to prove we made some payment or justify a deduction we took. Being an investigator is a lot like doing your taxes. It requires filling out a lot of paperwork and gathering lots of information if you want to do it right. Most of the private investigators you see on TV just wander around chatting with people until they crack the case with their hidden ability to spot a criminal through sheer gut instinct. In real life, solid investigators want documentation of everything. There's no way to perfectly remember the tremendous amount of information even a simple case generates. This week, I talked with Katie's mom, Vicki, private investigator and fellow podcaster Lori Morrison, and crowdsourcers Chelsea and Kendra about the documentation and evidence from Katie's case that's available for us to review and what should be, but isn't. The simplest task a police officer has to do is paperwork. How hard is paperwork? You walk in, you sit down, you fill out the forms, you sign your name, you're done. You tell the truth. Well, evidently in this particular case, it has been a nightmare. They can't seem to even get documentation until months later when memories change, their narratives have changed, and how they view the cases change. So I want to go over certain timelines documentation today. Okay, I have some charts made up. If I get where I can't go by memory, I can always double check my chart because I thought that was interesting with Brandon. Mr. Brandon, when he was talking about the interrogation, so-called, when you said, well, he said, what did they do after this? And you said nothing. But the other point of that, which is true, they did nothing of that was they had already ruled a suicide, but they called him in. You know, it was already a suicide. That's significant. So let's kind of go through that. And one of the things that I think the public doesn't understand is, so Lori and myself, we go to classes on continuing ed and we go to classes on how to treat a homicide. 
And the steps, when you walk into any kind of scene, doesn't have to be ruled a homicide at that moment. The very first thing you do, obviously, is secure the scene itself. And you treat it as if it were a homicide. And then you 101 in the handbook, number one, you know, yeah. And and that wasn't done according to what 48 Hours told me, who saw more crime scene stuff than me, that they were walking all over. You know, they didn't even treat it from moment one. All it definitely told me that, that the Amtrak had no camera. And then what I found out later in this last investigation in 2018 from Kokenda and Lewis was that Alec never even called Amtrak when it happened to get the video. He never picked up the phone to Alec, I mean to Amtrak, is what Kokenda and Lewis told me as far as Alec. So he was lying. He was lying. There was a camera. And there still is that footage. So so that footage would be out somewhere. But... My question then is, if she wasn't hit by the front, then the, the camera went to show it. One of the train experts we spoke to mentioned there was a camera on each engine. So it depends on how many engines the train had, you know, on it. The cameras could have been pointing forward. They could have been pointing backwards. Having well-written, detailed reports describing the case's evidence is critical to a successful investigation. It's hard to write a report about work you didn't do, and it's even harder to evaluate forensic data that you didn't make the effort to gather. So it really is going to come down to talking to someone with either CSX or Amtrak and getting specifics on that particular train, which would have been a lot easier back in 2008. I'm sure we can do our best to track down the exact. um, That's amazing because I never thought that would be possible at that time. Even if it was a camera, I figured they would have, you know, rode over that or something. Well, if they they had requested it um, and it's pulled aside as an archived, if, you know, it is requested, a lot of places will archive it because it is needed. Yeah. But again, what I was told is Alec never even picked up the phone and called Amtrak. So. Amtrak and CSX, when they're brought into a case, which they were, whichever train it ends up being, they have reports on this. They have documentation on it. Not just looking at the documentation that was provided, we're looking at the documentation that should be there that doesn't seem to be. Like, Alec, if you contacted these people, you should have documented that. In looking at any investigation, there are certain documents you expect to find in a case file. You look at the inventory of what is actually there. And in Katie's case, that inventory raises as many questions as it answers. Listen to our thoughts about what we saw and didn't see. I'm running into that right now with where he said he requested this Mm -hmm. Uh, surveillance camera footage from where the car would have had to drive by. We would see who was driving Katie's car. And the one thing I did get from Lieutenant Meadows was that no one ever requested that footage. He still seems to think they put the camera up in 2010, which is not correct. But he told me that there were no requests filed for that footage. You know, this is the stuff that ought to be there. And this is what's actually there. Why is that? 
In Katie's case, the police did not take written statements from Katie's father, Jeff, her brothers, or another young man who worked for the family's business who saw Katie the day that she died. They didn't seek out Katie's neighbors to see if they had spoken to her or notice anything unusual. They actually told Vicki they didn't want her talking to them either. Then as the people who knew Katie the best expressed their concern about Aaron's behavior, those concerns were simply brushed aside. If you were trying to evaluate a person's state of mind on any given day, wouldn't you talk to the people who saw them that day? We should have incident report, witness reports, people that were there, people that Katie saw within the last 24, 48 hours, actually through Monday when he says, when Aaron says she's acting different. If Katie were acting unusual, the only person that saw it seems to be Aaron. Everybody around her would have noticed something. I would have expected the police to want to talk to Jeff, to Jeremy, Jesse, and Derek. And I think there was one other worker there. They all saw her that day when she came up and she spoke to Aaron at the work site. They could have given evidence about how she was acting, how she appeared. Did any of them ever get called in for an official, even a written statement, or to talk to the detectives for an interview? No. Vicki, did the police ever talk to any of Katie and Aaron's neighbors? No, I went to the neighbors across the street, and I went to Mr. Hampton Robinson, and then I got hollered at by Alec not to go to anybody else. Like, I was going to mess up the case, you know. But what he didn't know is he didn't want me talking because he wasn't doing nothing. They got Hampton Robinson's statement that day and never went back to him. They, the neighbors know because the one neighbor saw Aaron's mom's car in the neighborhood, but right. you know, I never knew that. You know, I like to go back to Thursday. Their bodies are found. Maybe police leave here between 1230 and one o'clock in the afternoon from my house of us being notified and family coming. We never hear anything from anybody again all day. So nine o'clock that night, I called Rick Ollick because I had his card. So I called him to tell him, I hope you know that we think Aaron did this. And he's like, oh, no, no, he couldn't have done this. He's grieving too bad. I was like, what? That's how, you know, no no coming back to a family who just lost their pregnant daughter and, and Riverland, a little baby, to say, hey, here's where we're at. I had to call him. You know, then we go through the funeral, just had to let us talk, but didn't. they didn't want to meet with us. It was us pushing things. But they didn't sit and interview like Jesse or Jeff or, you know, me. Well, there just wasn't that interviewing. They came to my house. And anyway, so no, there was never no kind of investigation. Let me talk to Jesse. Did Jesse see her? Let me talk. Not, none of that. It was us pushing everything down their throats. My brothers flew down and they're trying to get them to go through the vehicles. You know, Aaron's truck's in here. They wouldn't go through the vehicles. They went forensic. Come look at Aaron's truck. We think he might have used his truck maybe, you know, and it's sitting here in our driveway. We wouldn't do anything that we asked. My sister, who was a nurse, tried getting them to make sure that they scrape under Katie's fingernails for DNA because she knew about that. I called Saturday morning. I called Driggers, and I'm questioning, why is the house not taped off? 
And he said, well, 90% of the evidence was found at the scene. We don't need to go to the house. Okay, time out. How would the police know that less than 100% of the evidence in the case was found where the bodies were located? That implies that the police are acknowledging that there is more evidence somewhere. There is nothing in the evidence available to us to indicate that they attempted to recover any evidence from any other location or source other than what was found near the railroad tracks. And if Katie's mother and other family members were giving them leads, why didn't they follow them? Once we discussed a lot of what wasn't done, we tried to piece together what was. We were trying, my brothers were trying, you know, my sister, me, we're all making contact trying to say, hey, can y'all, and they wouldn't do anything. Where was the other 10% from? They didn't go anywhere else. I mean, I just, you know, that's what he told me, you know, Saturday morning, I called him and I told him, you know, should I talk to the media, have them post Katie's truck to say, did anybody see anything? Cause I called him. Now these are, you know, they're not calling me. I called Ricky Driggers Saturday morning. I said, can I get to the media and I'm going to give him a picture of Katie's truck, you know, or at least the description to see if anybody saw that night. No, no, don't contact the media. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know. You think this system is in place to help you. You really do. So back to the question about contacting the neighbors. I, I agree with what Vicki said. I mean, there's nothing in the incident report until 2018. In May of 2018, there is a note that they spoke to one of the neighbors. That particular neighbor had a son that was about 13 at the time Katie passed away. That was Kokenda, but then Jessica went back and the wife who had talked to Katie Monday was never interviewed, just the husband. Correct. And the and wife is the one that talked to Katie out in, out in the road. It doesn't look like they talked to the son directly either. It looks like they only talked to the father. Yeah. They went back three day, four days later and the dad had talked to his son and then relayed to the police supposedly what his son had said. Yeah. So that is the only reference I find in the incident report. And that's because 48 Hours has a camera watching them this time. Yeah, I mean, it's more than a, a 10 and a half years after this happens that they finally talk to her. And so she's drawing on her memories from 10 and a half years back. In Katie's case, do we have documents, date and time of the initial report? We have an incident report. There's a paragraph written. It's dated January 17th. That's all I'm aware of having. Do you see anywhere, Kendra, where it says how these were received? No, I don't. It doesn't describe the scene very clearly. It is very, very Cliff Notes version. It is a body is there. It's female. About a quarter mile down is another body in the water. You know, it, it's very vague. One thing that I find interesting on it is, you know, she's not known. So where the name goes, of course, nothing's filled in. And uh, visible injury, the box, no, is checked. Visible from where? A half a mile away? Right. And if you look right underneath that, it says, were they drinking alcohol? It says no drugs, no. How do they know that? So when was this report actually done? Or is it, or is it assumed? Well, Chelsea's exactly right. 
when you see those kind of answers, knowing how obvious the injuries are, knowing that there's no way that they could know if drugs or alcohol were involved at that point, it makes you wonder when this was written. And if there's a a long delay, why? Next on just your 101 rookie death scene investigation, who is the reporting officer or dispatcher on that report? It's written by Corporal John Peters and approved by Sergeant Jimmy Wells. And I'm like, who are they? They've never been talked to. I have brought that to their attention that this report has two officers who have never been talked to. Who are they? I was going to say, according to the report, that's the responding deputy and also the first one to make contact with Joseph Williams. According to Joseph Williams, he's never been spoken to again. So he's the only one to make contact with Joseph Williams. Okay, so we got Joseph Williams' written statement, but he was probably in shock at that point, too. So wouldn't you think a couple days go by, you go back and talk to the person who found them? And they didn't even talk to the police officer, apparently, that found them, because we don't hear from these guys again. That's it. This is not a new way of doing investigations. This is a tried and true, here is your checklist. You have a checklist. Are you following this checklist? So in the report, Kendra, it is how long, did you say? That initial report where it describes the incident, I would call that no more than a paragraph. It's a typed paragraph. In that report, does it give details that are significant or not? Not significant enough that you could truly understand what the scene looked like or what really happened. It's not very detailed then, I take it. Correct. Arrival at a homicide. Are there any times on that record? Yes. There's an incident date and time. So there's there's multiple times listed. The dispatch date and time. The date was 117 of 08. The dispatch time was 825. The time arrived was 835. And the departure time was 12 o'clock noon. Three and a half hours on a death scene. That's it. Triple homicide. So you, you have you have two separate scenes you have to investigate because not all the deceased were in the same, located in the same area. And in total, you're taking three and a half hours. That's it. One thing I want to say, I want to hit this very hard. They are at a death scene. You walk into a death scene and you are looking at a homicide until you prove it otherwise. There are three bodies there. So it's a triple homicide and you don't know anything else. I also want to point out that while they're there, they find, supposedly while they're there, they realize this is Katie's car around the corner and they're theorizing that she ran walked, whatever, from the car to the area where she's found. Did they then expand their crime scene and try and find evidence between the two? There's no way in that that grass, that the trees on the side, so much stuff could have been hidden. There's no way in three hours you could have walked and found every single piece of evidence to support their theory. There's no way they were doing it in three hours. My thing is, too, reliving this is thinking triple homicide. 
pregnant woman and then a 10-month-old baby girl and the FBI's not called, SLED's not called to come and drill this scene for DNA, drill this scene for evidence that they had the resources. If Berkeley County didn't have the resources and they should have immediately called in the FBI, it's done around here all the time, double homicide, triple homicide. Why wasn't the FBI called? Why wasn't SLED called? Why, indeed, Berkeley County certainly didn't have an expert in train accident analysis, even if they had requested that appropriate information from Amtrak and CSX. If their investigators were highly trained in forensic interviewing, it certainly didn't show in Aaron's interview. If they had investigators adequately trained in gathering and documenting evidence, both physical and testimonial, why are there so many glaring holes in documentation? Reports should be written so that anyone reading them can understand what happened in the investigation. These don't seem to be written with that end in mind. So in reference to the the vehicle, like Chelsea mentioned, to me, that would be part of the crime scene. So you can't, so they say in the report, they secured the crime scene. But my question is, what did they consider the crime scene to be? Just where the bodies were? Or was it all the way from her vehicle to where the bodies were found? Because it's not clear at all. They also reference a crime scene log was initiated. I don't know what a crime scene log is, and I suspect we don't have a copy of it anywhere. I found that an interesting comment in there as well. When you're investigating this crime scene and you're you're moving it out and expanding it because now you have this vehicle as well, not only are you investigating and looking for pieces of evidence, you have to put down the little numbers so you know which evidence is which. You're supposed to put down something that gives you a frame of reference for size. Then you're supposed to be measuring between pieces of evidence so that you can recreate that scene should you need to. They ran Katie's vehicle tag approximately 9.30 that morning. So they knew where the vehicle, they ran, you know, they knew the address of the house. So in that two and a half, three hour time they spent there investigating, they should have expanded somebody to the house. What if the husband is there cleaning everything up? That just makes no sense. And I have this question, I've had it all these years, is they ran Katie's vehicle tag around 9.30 that morning. I got sent there from Aaron around 11.30. I got there about quarter to 12, almost noon. Almost to the record, they said they quit at noon. From 9.30 to noon, they had the tag. Why did they never even drive to the house to knock on the door and say, hey, we just found your wife, your baby, your wife's vehicle, or, you know, they might not have known she was married, but why didn't they ever, they had all them hours, they never, where'd they go? Where'd they go have lunch, have breakfast? Why didn't they go to the house and knock on the door? In the incident report, I went back to look at what Kendra was talking about where it says the crime scene log. It says the scene was unsecured and a crime scene log initiated by this deputy. He's a corporal. Why would he say deputy? Is he referring to himself or is he? It, it, did someone else write that? I'm confused by that. We've already gone through and you record the exact time. You record the exact address of the crime scene. 
I know there's no exact address on there. They list an address. Well, actually, no, they do not. They list a location, Oakley Road, Monk's Corner. Here's what they should have done. Record exact time of arrival. Record the exact address of the crime scene. Record outside weather temperature conditions. Record the outside lighting conditions. What time of day, sunny, dark cloudy. Interview the first officer and other police personnel at the scene to determine the sequence of events since their arrival. Crime discovered by Joseph, obviously. Date and time of initial call. Complete details of the initial police report. Determine the scope of the patrol officer's initial investigation at the scene. Protection of the crime scene. Notifications, alarms, bolos, which is what Vicki was just talking about. Preliminary investigation results. Record persons present at the scene. Police officers, law enforcement personnel, ambulance, emergency personnel, family or relatives of the friend. Witnesses, including persons detained by patrol, keep witnesses separated, provide for witness security and availability. That is just step two. That's it. But we do have at least the weather reports. That data was actually pulled from Charleston County when they called in the Charleston County forensic man this morning. So he actually did a more thorough job. Um, So he pulled the weather reports, not Berkeley County. And then the other thing, um, because listening to the list you made, that everybody should have been listed who was on the scene. I have an acquaintance who came to me years later, and he was a first responder and didn't know how to tell me, but he was at the scene. He's not listed anywhere. He was at the scene, saw my daughter's body standing by her, but he's not listed anywhere in the documents. There's no reference to it in the reports you know, as far as arriving on the scene, uh, the ground being muddy or the ground being dry or anything like that. Uh, Again, the reports have almost no information that's going to tell you that. I submitted a FOIA for a list of the names of all the investigators that have worked on this from the beginning. And I was denied because they wouldn't make me a list. They said you could look through the incident reports and and use those to figure out. We also asked for a list of who was present at the autopsies. Vicky actually told me that Oliver, the current coroner, said that if you look at the reports, it'll list who was there from the from the coroner's office. And then as far as people from the police station, you'd have to get it from them. They have no list of who was anywhere, who was by this body, who touched this evidence, who submitted this evidence, not to mention they lost Aaron's computer. And the last person with that was one of the current investigators on the case right now. Right. And I'm going to mention who it is because I think it's important. So Kokinda, Dean Kokinda is the one who is responsible for Aaron's computer and now it's missing. What else is missing, which we're going through and finding out. We're putting it all together. It's quite disturbing that Vicky's had to do her own investigation in order to find out what was done and what wasn't. And things come up missing. In that initial report, the interview of the first officers is that in the initial report. 
No, it is not. You don't hear anything that the initial responding officers have to say. The initial first responding police officers were were on a report, an incident report, but no supplement beyond that has been placed in the official case file. That's a correct statement. Okay. So all we have is their names and nothing else. Correct. And really, it's only written by one of the two and approved by the other. So we only have what John Peters wrote. We don't have anything from the words of Jimmy Wells. So we have no description on what they saw when they first arrived. We have no details of what they saw and who was there. Not only do we not have any of them things you just listed, we don't have anybody who's ever went and talked to these two officers to know what they have to offer. Even though I did ask Berkeley County to please find out who they are in contact, and that has never been done to this day that I'm aware of. Because it's not in the official file, correct? Correct. So in John Peters' initial report, he he describes very vaguely, but he does describe that he arrives on the scene, makes contact, the body is positioned approximately a quarter of a mile from the highway. So he gives very, very basic detail. Again, not much, but if they were to ever claim or be said that they didn't give a description... This paragraph that they wrote is a very, very, very basic description. That's the report that checks no injuries, right? This is the exact same report that when it asks if there are any visible injuries, the box marked no is the box checked. So the person that wrote the report isn't very observant, obviously. Obviously. There's also reference, but it's written by someone else. Now, it's written by Brian Mosier. But it's, it's one of the first supplementals that goes in here. And it says this detective, so I'm assuming he's referencing himself, spoke with Captain Olick, who was already on scene. I think it's important to note there's not a single report in here that's written by Rick Olick. When these case files are put together, they're obviously added to over time as they talk to more people, they discover more things, they get toxicology reports back and whatnot. But there is no systematic way that they have approached adding things. These things are not numbered. They're not bait stamped. There's there's no way of knowing if every single thing that is in there is the complete story. And if you had a systematic way of numbering these things like you would um, evidence. You have to number all the evidence. And so if you are presented with piece of evidence number 10 and then piece of evidence number 12, you can say, where's piece of evidence number 11? But they don't do this with these reports. And so we're just going on faith that we have been given everything. You are saying that there's no system, but there is a system. There is a system on how to handle a homicide. We go to school for that. Let me clarify what I meant. There is no system that was applied to these documents. If they have a system, they did not use it with all of these documents. And so there's no way to be certain, again, other than going on faith and maybe an affidavit would would be written up where they would swear that everything is complete. But there's no way for us to know that for certain. So it looks to me like they have not adopted basic death scene methodology on evidence gathering. I would say that's a fair statement given what we're looking at. 
And what I'd like to point out, and I learned this from a few meetings with SLED, was if there is an incident report, there's supposed to be a supplement report. And the supplements report's going to be how did they get this information from who? And that is very lacking in this case. There's the supplement reports. They have a witness. Somebody typed up an incident report, but there's no supplement report, so not protocol. Going further on the same supplemental report that Kendra was talking about where they mentioned that Captain Alec was there, it goes on to say he, Captain Alec was already on scene and was assisting forensic detective Spence with locating and securing the crime scene. So it seems like the crime scene was set up by Captain Alec and this forensic detective Spence, who, again, I don't see any report from this person until there's, I believe it's Crystal Spence in 2018. In that same report, it says, while the scene was being processed, we received information that an abandoned pickup truck was located near the tracks at 927 Oakley Road. That may be the female's pickup truck. See additional supplemental report. So while the scene was being processed, but they never say they extended the crime scene to include the pickup truck. Why, why put that in there and just say, it may be her truck, it may not, because you actually got that report the night before paperwork, who's there, the patrol officers, what they've seen, document. This is not hard stuff. We haven't gotten to the hard stuff. I'm an investigator, so questioning things is what I do. And I've got a lot more questions about the investigation in the deaths of Katie River and Aiden Major. Don't you? Join us next week as we continue to dig deeper into what evidence was collected, what wasn't, and how it was all documented. If you have any information you want to share on the podcast regarding the deaths of Katie, River, or Aiden, email tips at SheilaWysocki.com or call one 888 599-0008. Join Patreon and Crowdsource Justice with private investigator Sheila Wysocki. Without Warning Podcast, Season 3 Investigation, Derailed. Executive Director, Executive Producer, and Host, Sheila Wysocki. And Announcer, Tim Evans. Thank you to Lori Morrison of the podcast, The Unlovely Truth. Thank you to Danielle Birch, Chelsea Sarkowskis, and private investigator Jenny Moore for their boots-to-the-ground, passionate, laser-focused research.